Hi, welcome to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher. This week, Breitbart and its use of memes to attract an enormous following in the era of Trump, followed by how journalists are navigating what's been an extraordinary 10 days of the Trump administration, trying to figure out where they are in terms of objectivity and partisanship. And then we'll talk to our resident First Amendment expert at CJR, Jonathan Peters, about the challenges faced by reporters and news organizations in this era. And we'll be guided through all this by Dave Uberti, CJR's Delacorte, senior Delacorte fellow. Hello, Dave. One of these weeks you'll get that right. Uh, yeah, it's sort of a, um, <laughs> it's, 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 a cha- it's a bit challenging for me. Um, I can't believe that, what are we now, only 10 days into this new administration? I feel like I've aged years. I have a year, and it, and I don't know if we're particularly self-absorbed, or but my impression is that that so much of it has been about the media. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the through lines throughout the first ten days or so, and certainly one of the narratives that's easiest to understand, just given the volume of news that's come up. It's great for us, and um, hopefully great for listeners of the Kicker. So let's get going. All right. Thanks for that introduction, Kyle. And like you said, I'm Dave Uberti, a staff writer for Columbia Journalism Review. I want to welcome you all back to The Kicker. Thanks for kicking it with us. This is the only podcast in your feed not brought to you by Me Undies. First in our plate this week, we want to talk a little bit about Breitbart, the right-wing nationalist populist website that has taken the internet by storm over the last year and a half, and its use of memes, particularly on Facebook. Here to talk with me about it are two of my favorite guests in the podcast, Noska Renner, a Tau editor for CGR. Noska, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Pete Vernon, a Delacorte fellow for CGR who's coming fresh off of a fever. Pete, how are you feeling? Great. Great to be back. And just to be clear, if MeUndies does want to sponsor us, they can send us their free packaging anytime. We are always open for monetization opportunities. So back to Breitbart and memes. For those of you who don't know, Breitbart is a right-wing, rabble-rousing website that publishes a lot of news and opinion. It is formally presided over by Steve Bannon, who is now a top White House aide. And it has in the past published a lot of white nationalist content, a lot of what I would argue to be race-baiting content, and has certainly become one of the most prominent voices in the intramedia culture war on the internet. Noska, you wrote a really, really fascinating piece for CGR.org, which I will put in the show notes, about Breitbart's use of memes on Facebook. First off, what's a meme? And tell us a little bit about what you found in, insofar as analyzing their use of them. So memes are images that are built for sharing on social media. They're built to go viral. They're, they're usually an image with uh, white text overlaid. For instance, you know, the Doge thing, much news such fake. (laughs) And they're not attached to an article. They can have anything on them. Anybody can make them. Nobody can attribute them because there's no place for attribution and they're shared so widely and they're built to do that. So working with a content analyst at the Tau Center, we sort of looked at the memes that were shared on Breitbart's Facebook page over the course of 2016. And we found that by far the, the memes that they shared did much, much better than the links. The top 10 most shared posts were nine images in one video. They're really political and they're not uh, necessarily even true. So for instance, the second most shared post says, the fix is in. Hillary Clinton cleared by the FBI just days after Bill Clinton and Loretta Lynch's secret meeting on a private plane. 
it's accompanied by a caption from Breitbart that says, unprecedented corruption. Now, Hillary Clinton was cleared by the FBI. I should say this post was from, I think, July. So this is before the James Comey incident in uh, September and October. But Hillary Clinton was cleared by the FBI. Bill Clinton did meet with Loretta Lynch. Loretta Lynch said that she was like totally embarrassed that it casts bad light on the Department of Justice. And Breitbart here is implying that there's a relationship between those two incidents. And they say it's unprecedented corruption. This doesn't feel like a piece of news content to me. This feels like a opinion mongering image. On the plus side, they did spell unprecedented correctly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I just want to share a couple of uh, statistics that you have in your piece, which are really fascinating. Uh, 5% of Breitbart's Facebook posts from 2016 were photos. 49% of their top 100 Facebook posts were photos. And of all their total Facebook shares in 2016, 57% came from photos off of just 5% of their content being photos. To me, this is a really, really interesting snapshot of how media organizations or individuals really can use their Facebook pages to transmit their messaging really far and wide without even having to go through the difficulty of creating articles or things that look like articles. Well, it also speaks to just the nature of Facebook, right? You're scrolling through a feed it gives you a chance to digest a bit of information without going through the arduous process of actually clicking on anything. And so people that might live in kind of the conservative or right-wing filter of Facebook or or Twitter, they see these. And as as you mentioned, it's not a full article. It's not a uh, conclusive argument supported by evidence. But I imagine if you're living in a world where these sort of memes are popping up over and over again. The thing, the the comparison I keep coming back to is, if you are someone who goes to the supermarket twice a week and walks by the aisle of National Enquirer stuff, and you don't even buy them, you don't read the articles, but if you do that enough and see the same sort of images enough, you're going to believe that celebrity couple X is having trouble in their marriage, even if you've never bothered to read the article. I think it's actually even more insidious than that with Breitbart. I mean, their editor-in-chief said that their Instagram page, which contains some of the same images, is meant to be used as, quote, digital ammunition to blast across social media. I mean, tabloids to me feel somewhat self-contained. Tabloids aren't trying to make you believe something they're giving you content to consume, whereas this is sharing to make people believe something. And I think the content of these messages are interesting as well, and they speak, in my view, to a broader takeaway I've seen recently on conservative media, which is none of these are fake news per se through the narrow definition that we like to employ. As Nasca said, they have bits of real information scattered throughout these individual messages. But the broader takeaway from a lot of them is either factually untrue or the implied meaning is not necessarily correct. And I think that, to me, is a broader and much more difficult problem to solve than is the sort of narrow cast fake news pieces of content fabricated wholesale in order to change someone's mind or make a make a couple of dollars off of ads. Hearing from journalists and uh, just people who have lived in other countries where, you know, some level of authoritarianism has existed, that's something that they keep coming back to. It's not necessarily that fake news as in things that are made up whole cloth is the danger. It's that when information is distrusted and kind of all media is cast as somehow untrustworthy, People aren't sure where to turn to uh, get information about what their government is doing. 
I'm just going to read a couple of the uh, the text of a few of these just to give our listeners a better idea of what's being shared. So, for instance, the most shared image on Breitbart's Facebook page for all of 2016 is, remember that time Republicans rioted, beat Democratic voters, destroyed property, and torched American flags? Me neither. The implication there being that Democrats are the ones who riot and destroy property. And just to jump in there, the head, if I'm reading this correctly, 150,000 likes, almost 600,000 shares. Yes. The third most shared. I'm voting for the presidential candidate not under FBI investigation. And FBI is in huge letters. The fourth one also has to do with the FBI. There's one that says pray for Brussels. There's one that says, Beyonce should have honored America's armed forces, not the Black Panther Party, referring to her uh, Super Bowl appearance. (laughs) There's one with a picture of Tim Kaine. It does not identify him, but it says that he can interrupt and be creepy at the same time. Uh, Not sure the context for that one. The through line with all of these is, as I said earlier, they are sort of part of this media culture war. And as we've spoken about multiple times in the podcast before with regard to Facebook, the problem of filter bubbles and sort of this content seems extremely well suited to take full advantage of people's filter bubbles and uh, you know travel through Facebook at incredibly high speeds and reach incredibly broad audiences. They're not asking people to engage critically with these as you would a news story, right? It's something that you could imagine someone posting and saying, oh, I just found this funny. This Tim Kaine one, it's a picture of him kind of giving a creepy smile and a thumbs up. And I'm assuming this was posted just after the VP debate where he interrupted Mike Pence a few times. Like I could imagine someone being like, oh, that's funny. And you share that on Facebook. The medium that we're dealing with here lends itself to a lack of critical thinking. It's a quick, easy click. The message, as you mentioned, it's kind of insidious if you see these over and over and over again. Yeah, if you were someone who wasn't particularly involved in politics but constantly saw people sharing this stuff, I think you would assume Hillary Clinton has some sort of shady dealings going on, even if you weren't reading you know, any newspaper or even watching, even watching cable news. What do you associate with Hillary Clinton? Corruption, FBI. Yeah, I think also for me, maybe one of the bigger issues than Breitbart using this to spread hyper-partisan opinions is that Breitbart's social media presence, they're taking advantage of the social media presence in order to publish this kind of partisan content that they couldn't on their site. Or maybe they could, but on their site, they are much more strongly news, you know, republishing right. from other sites. Yeah, you and I were talking about this the other day about how they very frequently run wire stories from, say, Reuters or Associated Press or AFP, which are very traditional down the center news organizations. But they slap a very, what's the word I'm looking provocative. for? Provocative. Very provocative title on it or share it with a very provocative tweet or Facebook description. People could very well just be taking in that information but not going into the, you know, generally down the middle articles that they read. Right. I mean, the one that struck me about this was last week when Steve Bannon called the New York Times and told them that the media needs to shut its mouth. All Breitbart did was pull the Bannon quotes from that story that Michael Greenbaum had written in the New York Times, put them in block text, and then slapped a headline above it that says, Bannon eviscerates the media, which is one version of what happened, I guess, uh, and certainly the Breitbart version of it. You know, they could say, all we're doing is doing what the New York Times did, and we just have a different headline. I just think if you included Breitbart's social media presence in your view of the entire company, could you call it a news organization? We could devote an entire podcast for that. I think the moral of the story here is that 
our own podcast distribution strategy requires more means. <laughs> Moving on to our next topic. More than a year ago on the campaign trail, President Donald Trump, then reality TV star Donald Trump, proposed the idea of a ban on Muslim immigration to our country. Media almost universally condemned that as contrary to American values. And this conversation has been brought up once again over the last 10 days or so, and particularly over this weekend after Donald Trump signed an executive order banning refugees and a number of countries' residents uh, temporarily from immigrating to the United States or visiting the United States. And I think it's a really interesting window into this broader question under the Trump administration, which is that journalists in some senses see themselves as guardians of democracy, guardians of democratic norms, democratic behavior. We want to facilitate democratic discussion. And at what point do we have to put our foot down and label something as contrary to those norms or values or rules? Is it within our purview to label something as American or un-American in the case of banning refugees from coming into the United States. I'm still grappling with this one. I don't know what the answer is. And I'm I'm curious on what your thoughts are and and whether this particular episode over the course of the last week with Trump's executive action has changed at all how you approach the question. I don't have a list in front of me, but do either of you know which papers ended up speaking out against the ban? I feel like on the opinion pages of most any newspaper, there's been at the very least significant concern, if not outright condemnation. And I know, Dave, you looked at front page papers on Monday. I went to the museum, their website, which has a really good daily tracker of newspaper front pages. And I looked through about 50 or 60 front pages from across the country. And on almost every single one of them, there were protests above the fold, images of protests, headlines about protests. The common words were things like confusion, chaos, outcry, Obviously, that's within the news coverage, and I think it's within journalists' uh, right and duty to describe the confusion and chaos that took place in wake of the Trump administration's move. Um, But it certainly feels as if, I mean, even just reading the coverage, but also just talking to friends and acquaintances within the media industry, looking through my Facebook feed, I have a lot of journalist friends. It certainly seems like journalists, generally speaking, broadly speaking, with a few exceptions, think that there is more wiggle room for them to speak out against a refugee ban because it's contrary to American values. There's a lot of people, for example, sharing the inscription on the Statue of Liberty, giving your tired, your poor. Yeah, I guess my experience with this has mostly been with friends figuring out whether or not they can go to the protests. We ran a piece about whether or not journalists could attend the Women's March. I tend to think of this in a in a similar way. I mean, I have I have friends who are journalists who will go to the marches and not hold signs or chant, but just be there to be a body there. And then if they're pulled over in any way, they'll say that they're just there to observe. And it's a it's an easy way of riding the line. But I, I do tend to agree that when it comes to something that is about just straight up the Constitution, there's some argument, of course, about whether this is unconstitutional or not. I think it's going farther and farther towards being unconstitutional. But that it does seem like that's the the that's where partisanship ends and defending the country begins. And I think beyond constitutionality and, and whatever legal arguments are going to play out about this, there's an aspect of humanity. Journalists are people, and wrong. <laughs> as much as some we're would, robots, <laughs> some would uh, not believe. And also, like 
just by virtue of our profession, which often involves going out and talking to people who are different than us to find out their views, perhaps are more likely than many other professions to have acquaintances or friends who would be impacted by this. I thought Lydia Paul Green, who's the editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post, said something interesting on CNN on Sunday morning. And her quote was, how can someone be neutral or dispassionate when you have colleagues whose family members escaped the Holocaust or escaped oppression in Eastern Europe during the Cold War? I think it's a little bit unreasonable to think that journalists are not going to have any skin in the game. All of us are people with our own set of opinions, our own belief systems. And that doesn't mean you can't you know, write fairly and go seek out others who have different opinions than you. But when something like this comes up, Expecting people just not to respond and to be robots, I don't think is realistic. I want to make the opposite argument for a second, though. I was thinking about a thought experiment earlier of if there was a march or a protest in favor of freedom of the press or the First Amendment, could journalists participate? On the one hand, it seems like definitely because that's journalists in support of their own jobs. But on the other hand, doing journalism itself is the act of preserving freedom of the press. And so what what is it that you do in protest that you couldn't do in your own job in terms of promoting constitutionality? That sort of reminds me of a frequent critique that came from liberal writers and thinkers over the course of the campaign, which is that journalists very often take this activist approach to the First Amendment, freedom of speech and what have you. So if you do that, why can't you protect other democratic values and other, other democratic norms? It is difficult in some senses because you know, a lot of the population might not necessarily agree with democratic values or norms. I don't think we'd be in a position with President Donald Trump if that were not the case. You know, I've seen recent polling taken before Trump uh, executed this action on refugees that showed more people actually supported this idea than were against it. Now, I obviously think those numbers will probably change in wake of this flood of media coverage highlighting very human stories of families being torn apart and not being able to reconnect. Maybe it just requires separating the two things into different strains of coverage. Well, I noticed that you, Dave, retweeted something from Mike Pence from 2015 over the weekend disowning the idea of a Muslim ban. Uh, you mean when he said calls to ban Muslims from entering the U.S. are offensive and unconstitutional <laughs> on December 8th, 2015? Public records. I'm sorry, Pete. Do you just have Dave's Twitter up on your computer no, all the time? No, I, I have Mike Pence's <laughs> Twitter up, although I do have, you know, alerts set for whenever David Uberti tweets. <laughs> but so when As you... As every good journalist. <laughs> should. <laughs> <laughs> so when you retweeted that, what what was what was going through your head? Is it that you wanted to show the public a piece of information that uh, is pertinent to what's going on now, or you wanted to point out the total hypocrisy of it, or was it sort of an activist, you know, constitution defending drain in you? I will say that I retweeted your retweet. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the most important thing. I mean, one of the difficult things with this is that the Trump administration has clearly employed some very tactical legalese in crafting this order and framing it in a way that makes it seem as if it's not a quote-unquote Muslim ban, but rather a travel ban from specific majority Muslim countries. Where it gets squishy is that Donald Trump did support a Muslim ban on the campaign trail. You know, you have to take that as being the spirit behind this action on his part. And I don't see any way to overlook that. So when I retweeted Mike Pence saying that a Muslim ban would be unconstitutional is pointing out the guy who's in second command or purportedly in second command of our country is kissing the ring and going along with it, which I think is it's crazy. Going back to this question and in this old kind of ideal, this this thing that journalists are supposed to hold themselves to of objectivity, 
You know, I don't know if anybody's ever mastered that as much as we might look to the past and say like Some people are really good at it though. <laughs> Some people I mean, are, are really yeah. Are, yeah. are really good at holding But what does that, that actually standard. mean? Is it is it just that they don't let their own views out? Because obviously everybody has their own views. There are no It's it's that they that they don't make their views public in any way. So and they cover it with it, reporting, like a thorough reporting on a yeah, topic. Yeah. I mean, they won't Journalists like that will not sign a petition. They will okay. never tell anybody who they voted for. Right. I think. I mean. I think a guy who does a good job of this is someone like Jake Tapper, who, if you follow his Twitter feed or his reporting on CNN.com or his TV show, he will. You know, he'll cover the different aspects of the story. He will cover the very human stories of families being disconnected from one another. He will cover the actual reasoning behind this policy or purported reasoning behind this policy. Will this actually be effective in being a counterterrorism measure? And then you could also cover public opinion regarding this. Why do people hold these views if the underlying reasons for the problem don't necessarily match up with the prescription? Some people are very good at it, and it's because they can sort of separate those different strains of coverage into different stories. What you're describing are people who, if they have a bias, it's biased towards the truth. And when you brought up Jake Tapper, I just opened up his Twitter and like, you know, for for no specific reason, out of the blue, 22 hours ago, he tweeted, hashtag facts matter, which is just a tenant of journalism. Sure, facts matter. But even in that statement is politicized in today's world, which is crazy that we have to say like facts matter and that it carries a specific political weight. But I think that's the bias journalists should have. They should be biased towards facts. Bias towards truth and accuracy. That's kind of uh, an oxymoron, isn't it? Joining us on the pod today is Jonathan Peters. John is a lawyer. He's a media law professor at the University of Kansas, and he is CJR's in-house press freedom correspondent. He writes for our United States project, which covers, in addition to press freedom, a lot of local news. Jonathan, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Dave. So we've talked a lot on this podcast, and I've written a lot on CJR, about Donald Trump's rhetorical threats to the press. You know, he delegitimizes sort of the journalistic enterprise wholesale, uh, and his aides have inhibited a fact-based debate in many cases in TV interviews or statements from the briefing room. You focus on the press freedom side of things, the more legal aspect. Coming into a Trump administration, what are some of the broad areas that you are looking at, you are concerned about, where should we be focusing our attention uh, both now and over the coming years? The first point I would make is that it is important to pay attention to the rhetorical attacks uh, made by the Trump administration. Uh, for example, in the last you know, week to 10 days, Trump or one of his aides has said that the administration is in a, a running war with the media. He has called journalists the most dishonest human beings on earth. Aides have suggested that, that press briefings may be changed at some point. BuzzFeed was called a failing pile of garbage. CNN is regularly called fake news. Those are all important because you know, they serve to delegitimize the press. And in doing so, it undermines the independence that the press depends on to exercise its First Amendment rights. So putting the rhetorical attacks aside, though, if, if we look at this as a legal problem, one of the areas where I would expect some change and, and some challenges would be in the area of freedom of, of information. Trump and his White House can't singularly change the Freedom of Information Act, which is the federal law that enables us to go to executive agencies and to demand from them uh, records. 
it is subject to some exemptions, and the exemptions have been growing and growing over the years. But that is an important law today. And the way that a president can affect the FOIA is by signing executive orders and memoranda that can make little tweaks to the law's implementation. Uh, so one example would be President Obama, he signed, uh, it was one executive order and two presidential memoranda calling for, uh, it was, quote, a new era of openness. And the idea was to reestablish a presumption of disclosure for any records that would be requested under the FOIA. Uh, the goal was to reverse a precedent set by George W. Bush. Now, the 2016 FOIA amendments actually codified that presumption of disclosure. So the effect is to make it a lot more difficult for any president, including Trump, to change that presumption without first going to Congress. Hmm. Uh, but when you look at the Congress that we have right now, I, I don't know that that would be a very hard you know, road for the president and White House to take. The other thing about FOIA that, that is important for any president uh, is the Department of Justice. Uh, the Department of Justice in many ways shapes the way that agencies comply with the FOIA and, more directly, the DOJ is responsible for making government arguments related to the FOIA in federal court. So the administration uh, can shape the requirements of FOIA by influencing the substantive arguments that the government makes in that uh, litigation. So that's one area freedom of information. Another area where I would expect some movement would be in the area of public affairs and national security reporting. Uh, we saw under President Obama, um, it was a historic effort to prosecute government leakers. And I, I would suspect that that would continue. Uh, Jeff Sessions said at his, uh, his said, I think it was about two weeks ago now, that he would not commit to, um, well, not arresting, but uh, taking action against journalists who would refuse to disclose sources of information. He, he seemed to play dumb a little bit to the question, from my recollection. Right. Yeah, and he said that well, you know, I'm I'm not really familiar with those rules, and so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make any promises. That is worrisome because that was one promise that the news media were able to extract from Holder after, admittedly, a many many years of, say, you know, the James Risen affair, the James Rosen affair, right. uh, the, the revelation that the administration had sought third-party subpoenas against AP reporters and others. That was the storm in which that promise was extracted. You know, I, I would expect public affairs to be a pretty hot area. Right. Um, I've heard some people suggest that maybe the Department of Justice would go directly at journalists using the Espionage Act, and I don't think that's impossible. I would just try to add some context to that, that as far as we know, that has only ever happened once in 1942 in a grand jury proceeding against the Chicago Tribune. And you mentioned how Obama's record with regard to leak investigations was somewhat ominous in terms of setting a precedent for Trump. What was his record on FOIA in terms of implementing FOIA, answering FOIA requests? The FOIA has been in decline for a number of years, mm. and I guess before I get into the, into the decline, I will say that there is some good, good news. Um, over the summer, we had the passage of the, the FOIA Improvement Act, and that did change some disclosability requirements and generally made it easier for the public to access records. So just a couple of the, the, the Improvement Act's highlights. 
Um, in the area of electronic records, the law now requires all federal agencies to make disclosable records available to the public via an electronic format. And the goal is to speed up production and to reduce cost. In the area of repeat requests, the law now requires agencies to make available for public viewing any disclosable document requested three or more times. We have that little bit of good news. Now, the bad news, the FOIA is handicapped by delays, significant delays that make it difficult for journalists and others to receive public information. And so if we want to establish first that these delays do exist, let's start from the threshold point that the FOIA generally requires agencies to determine within 20 working days after receipt of a request whether it will satisfy the request and then notify the requester accordingly. In practice, the 20-day deadline is often ignored. Mm. Um, Many agencies have massive FOIA backlogs. The Department of State is pretty bad about this. The the DOJ is not awesome itself. Now, what are the reasons? Why does this happen? I think one is political involvement in the FOIA process. Political officials sometimes interfere with disclosure. FOIA requests can get subjected to an extra layer of review if they involve politically sensitive information. Uh, Records, and, and as a result of that, records deemed problematic can get withheld under questionable exemption claims. Another thing that we have seen a good amount of in the last eight years has been intra-agency consultation. Mm. Um, it is common for agencies to consult with other agencies that has uh, that have what the law calls equities in the requested records. So the agency processing a FOIA request can consult any other agency before disclosing if the other agency has an interest in the information contained in that record. Uh, Consultation is allowed by the statute, but I think it's become problematic in the sense that it's supposed to be done speedily, Mm. but provides 10 additional days before a response is due. And in too many cases, agencies use the consultation process as an effective denial without actually making a a decision. So if you come to me and tell me that you're working on this really time-sensitive story and your deadline is, is in six days, then one thing I could probably do is slow it down uh, by using an interagency consultation. At any rate, you know, we have these delays, and, and I think that under the Obama administration, you know, the FOIA did not get much better, if at all. Jonathan, this is Pete here. Uh, I had a question kind of related to these press freedoms that you're talking about, and that's in order for investigative journalists, uh, accountability journalists to do their job, they need sources from within government, civil servants who are willing mm-hmm. to speak with them and, and give them information. Or even just run-of-the-mill reporting, honestly. Yeah. It doesn't have to be investigative mm-hmm. stuff, just sort of you know reporting on agencies, Department right. of Agriculture, EPA, stuff like that. Well, and we've seen in the first days of his administration, Donald Trump demand an investigation into who told NBC News that, uh, you know, he had been, it was something about the the briefings um, from the intelligence community, who leaked to them, uh, what was in the briefings or what was discussed. And so can you speak at all about what challenges his administration could present to civil servants and, and members of these agencies being able to speak out and what sort of legal ramifications they could face? 
if we look at it from the journalist perspective first and then the uh, civil servant perspective second, uh, about the journalist, we need to keep in mind that we don't have a federal shield law. And uh, to the extent that we have a First Amendment-based federal privilege not to testify about uh, confidential sources or about unpublished uh, confidential information, that exists in the federal circuit courts, and it's a bit of a patchwork around the United States. So you might get protection in one circuit, protection, uh, no protection in another circuit, and then a very different type of protection in yet a third. So unfortunately, we, we do not have terrific protections in place for journalists to protect their confidential sources, which could affect that kind of reporting. The other thing that would be worth noting is um, at the height of the controversy around the the Ryzen, Rosen, and AP affair, the Department of Justice revised its guidelines for investigating journalists. And typically, the investigations will be uh, to root out the source of a government leak of uh, classified or otherwise confidential material. A couple of the important changes that were announced by the DOJ in 2013, uh, one of them says that the attorney general, him or herself, not just a member of the Department of Justice staff, has to authorize personally any probes into all news gathering activities. And the reference to news gathering activities actually struck, it was old language that applied to ordinary news gathering activities. And that that was worrisome to the press because they looked at the word ordinary and and said, well, okay, what about extraordinary news gathering activities or just something that wouldn't quite fit the bill of an ordinary form of of the doing of journalism? Now, if we look at it from the civil servant perspective, um, I think it is important to acknowledge that it's common for a new administration to make changes to, um, to, to agency web content, to instruct staff not to publish external communications, not to to speak with journalists until new officials get settled in. But with that in mind, what rights do government employees have to, to speak out on matters of public concern? Under the First Amendment, the government may not fire or otherwise discipline one of its employees for his or her speech if three criteria are met. One, the speech has to be related to a matter of public concern. Two, the speech cannot be part of the employee's job duties. And three, the speech's value to the employee and to the public outweighs any harm that it would cause to the agency's efficient operation. So if you as a government employee can meet those criteria, then you would be protected under the First Amendment. But the First Amendment is not the only legal source here that matters. There are also whistleblower protections that come in the form of a statute that forbid the government from prohibiting its employees from making certain kinds of disclosures to people like inspectors general, special counsels, to Congress and to the media. All right. I just have one more quick question for you, John, because we have to run here. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I I seem to recall that in November, when Breitbart threatened legal action against people labeling it as a, quote, white nationalist website, that you offered pro bono legal representation to them. Uh, I was just curious if that offer still stands. It absolutely does. Yes. If anyone is sued by Breitbart for making the claim that Breitbart is a white nationalist website, I would be happy to represent that person, if only to have the gratifying experience of discovery process with Breitbart. And then we would all love to hear about that. Yes. (laughs) All right. John Peters, CGR's press freedom correspondent, lawyer, and a media law professor at the University of Kansas. John, thanks for joining us. 
All right. Thanks, Dave and Pete. I appreciate it. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank Jonathan Peters, CJR's Press Freedom Correspondent, and Noska Renner, CJR's Tau Editor. also want to thank Pete Vernon, a Delacorte Fellow for CJR. Pete, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me back. And I hope you subscribe to The Kicker on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a comment. Hit me up on Twitter at David Uberti or at CGR, and I will try to hit you back. Go to CGR.org and become a member of our magazine. You'll get a couple print issues a year. You get a weekly subscribers newsletter written by yours truly. And also some additional content and engagement from our editor and publisher, Kyle Pope. Once again, that's CGR.org. And I'm David Uberti, a staff writer for CGR. Thanks for kicking it with us. We'll see you next week.